this is kind of a continuation, except the focus is on rest. Uh, I didn't count the number of times, but <clears throat> the word rest appears here more than anywhere else. Um, but it's combined with the idea that those who enter the rest are the faithful ones. Those who do not enter rest, they do so because they have not combined the word with faith. Uh, if you go back to 3.1, it begins by pointing out the faithfulness of Christ, who is described as the mediator. Chapter 4, I think, is describing a participation in this faithfulness uh, of Christ so as to enter rest. So if we read Hebrews 3.1 to 4.14, the, the whole thing is held together maybe by 3.1, and 4.14, of whom our confession speaks, Jesus was faith, who was faithful. Uh, and then 4.14, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession. So he's the faithful one, of whom our confession speaks, is the beginning of the pericope. And then let us hold fast the confession in 4.14 is the end of it. So one of the basic premises of Hebrews uh, is this idea uh, of confession of Jesus. It's by the confession of Jesus uh, the, it is faith is maintained. And this is confirmed, you know, in 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And throughout this, it's a corporate encouragement. Let us, you know, we, um, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a time element involved, you know, in the, in the illustration, entering the promised land, also a space element that, you know, I said that backwards. The time element is the Sabbath, today, the day, and then uh, the idea of, uh, of a place. But the, the idea here of entering the rest is not so much the idea of entering a place as being faithful to the word. And so there's a, a change up. I'll come back to that thought. In 3, 5 to 6, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. And then it's compared with Christ, who was faithful as a son, whose house we are. So his faithfulness constitutes the house. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So faithfulness is the necessary principle to enter rest in 2.17. And in, in, uh, Jesus is described as the merciful and faithful high priest. And the danger the writer is warning against is not living by faith, failing to enter into the rest, falling short. Hebrews is mixed. It's a kind of interesting mix of profound encouragement, but also of a, a, a warning. I'll end today, I'll quote a little bit from Soren Kierkegaard on this, because his upbuilding discourses, uh, which Matt just sent me, sounds a lot like the book of uh, Hebrews. So the, the alternative, you know, the danger 
is that if you don't live by faith, that you're attempting to work it out by yourself. And the word works will appear in Hebrews again and again, and it'll have a different nuance, and it never really is like Paul, who is talking about the works of the law. But the, the role of work is woven uh, in both a negative and, and positive sense throughout. And so my claim is that it is the particular faithfulness of Christ that is connected to the capacity for rest. Notice in this passage we just read, they did not, or right after this, they did not enter that rest because as it says somewhere, that there is still the opportunity to enter that rest. Chapter 11 says the same thing. Uh, you know, the chapter 11 is the faith chapter, right? But even after all these examples of faithfulness, and in, in it says, as it, uh, you know, 4.13, 11.13 sound a lot alike, all of these died without receiving the promises. They were faithful, and yet they did not receive the promises. And so in Hebrews 3 to 4, the promise is that of entering God's rest through the faithfulness of Christ, confessing Christ. And in Hebrews 11, 8 to 9, the promise is shown not to have been fulfilled through entering the promised land. That is, they entered the promised land, but that turned out not to be the promised rest. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. In 8.10, verse 11, chapter 11 says something very similar. Uh, in this section, we've talked about God's six days of work and then the rest. And work is going to appear again and again with uh, the writer begins, he celebrates the works of creation. Psalms 95 uh, talks about uh, God's works in the wilderness, you know, the theophanies. And the writer is quoting Psalms 95. And yet he refers to those works as in some way not leading to rest or faithfulness. So he shifts, the writer of Hebrews shifts the emphasis and calls the community not to see and remember God's works, but to heed God's word. There is, I think it's a direct reference to Christ. Here is the true, you know, accomplishment of God's purposes. Uh, the culmination of the work of creation, of course, we've talked about is the seventh day, but Jesus says, you know, my father and I are both working, uh, that it's the work of Christ in redemption that is the true work of God in the seventh day. Hebrews 6.1 says, not laying again, again a foundation of repentance from dead works, which does sound a lot like Paul, right? That uh, maybe dead works of the law, and of faith toward God. Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I can't help it, you know, whenever... I, I always go back to Romans 7 and 8. Sorry. Uh, but... Romans 7, there's the dead works and how they're taken up into hum, human conscience. Paul specifically there talking about works of the law. Uh, that here is the dead works of the law that he refers to as this body of death. Here is the failure to attain rest. You know, Paul doesn't use that language in Romans, but 
Certainly by Romans 8, the resolution to the agonistic struggle of Romans 7 is undone. So I think it's a, a parallel understanding. The idea throughout, though, is one work is replaced for uh, with another in Rome, Hebrews 6, 10 to 12. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. That is, they're working, perhaps the same sort of work that you know, that Christ says, my father and I are both working. And what is that work? In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you sh uh, show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The writer's not going to talk about rest after 4, I think it's verse 11. But I think there is this this idea of entering in, uh, uh, of having hope, of, uh, you know, he says, you will not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the promised rest. In uh, the book ends, 1320, uh, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Uh, so there is this theme of work as the, the sermon progresses, uh, and the move is away from dead works into good works. Uh, just as God's work, you know, in the six days was preparatory for God's rest uh, for the faithful. Work or good works on behalf of the community functions to nurture and encourage that community so that all might remain faithful to the end. So it is one thing to carry out dead works, and it is another to serve the living God. That's the contrast the writer's using here. You know, you either do dead works or you turn to the living God. Take care, brethren, that there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The living God will be a fearful thing in Hebrews, you know. But also, in this, the point is that this is really serious stuff. You know, our God is a consuming fire. So there is the idea of you've got this great inheritance, you've got this great promise, uh, you've heard this word, there's no alternative to this word. If you turn away from this word, uh, there's no place else to go. Um, so the movement is, you know, if you think Jesus when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think it's the same movement of rest as we enter in. We take up the burden of Christ, replace, you know, displace the burden that we carry. That, by the way, in the in the book of Matthew is situated in the Sabbath controversies. Do you remember when he says that? It's right before they're going out into the field and the disciples begin to pick grain and. Uh, at, at the end of that, you know, he tells the story of David and his, uh, that they go into the temple and eat the showbread. Um, and he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then right after that, 
he heals the man whose hand was withered on the Sabbath. So the, the picture is commitment to dead works. And, and right at the end of that passage, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. If you're committed to the dead works of the law, you would destroy the Lord of the Sabbath, is the picture. The writer of, the, of Hebrews, I think, is making a similar stark contrast. Um, <clears throat> the term rest it uh, connotes several things. In, in this passage, I think it's obvious. <clears throat> it's not ceasing activity, but it is ceasing one sort of activity uh, to begin another, just as God ceases creation to begin redemption. Jesus demonstrates that uh, the Sabbath is not without activity, but it's restoration, you know, the man's withered hand, it's redemption. And so as Lord of the Sabbath, creation's purpose is to find union with God. Paul uses, as the other writer in the New Testament, that will use the word rest uh, almost as frequently as the writer of Hebrews, but he uses it in a very different context. Um, and in a sense, it's a different context. You know, a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 17 to 18. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed, and there is the word, same Greek word, <clears throat> they have given rest to my spirit and yours. And he says that in many books several times. And whenever he uses the term rest, you know, the idea of giving comfort, we've, uh, we've been refreshed uh, by the brothers. And so this rest also in Hebrews is something that I think we experience corporately in the brotherhood. He is talking throughout of encouraging one another, you know, to, while it is today, to enter this rest. So when Paul talks about it, he's always referring to people? All the time. I think every time. And to specific individuals. That these individuals have refreshed you or they've refreshed me, and the word there is just the same word as, as rest. Um, and so the idea, I think, is the same, that it's, a, it's a, a present tense spiritual experience. Is it eschatological? I think that we don't want to exclude that, but it's not exclusively that either. In other words, it's not that, oh, at some future time you will enter this rest, but existentially, as in Romans 7 and 8, that you will pass from unrest, unbelief, working under the law to life in the law of the spirit in which the struggle is undone. Uh, Revelation is the, uh, one other place that pictures rest and unrest. You probably know the passage. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. But then right after that, I, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. There are works or their deeds that will follow you to the grave. There are other works or deeds that, in fact, do not follow you to the grave. And so these good kinds of works 
are are ones that impact uh, you know even life after death. And so rest is the idea of belonging to God. It's currently available to the faithful in conjunction with faithfulness. Paul uses it as a spiritual peace or pleasure. Revelation uses it as a future or final state, the place of the the faithful. Uh, And I think Jesus in Matthew is using it in a similar way to the writer of Hebrews or vice versa. It's a state of being belonging to God. It's currently available as a gift from God. Uh, That we have this rest that's available to us through the faithfulness through Christ who takes, uh, uh, relieves us of the burden that we would carry, the work that we would do otherwise. There is a uh, set of sayings called the Dialogues of the Savior. Has any, have any of you heard? I can't claim that I knew it was familiar with this, but it, some say these date back to the first century. And in them it has the Lord teaching the disciples about rest. So Matthew says, Why do we not rest at once? And Jesus says, When you lay down these burdens... Matthew said, how does the small join itself to the big? This sounds a little bit like Japanese cones, actually. But The Lord said, when you abandon the works which will not be able to follow you, then you will rest. I think it's a direct reference to Revelation. That's exactly what John said in Revelation. There is a work that will follow you to the grave. When you abandon the works that do not follow you to the grave then you will rest. That is, there's, there's real work, there's redemptive work, there's the work of making whole, there is the encouraging work in the body of Christ, there's the upbuilding work that we do for one another, and that follows you to the grave, and that's true rest. There's the other activity that consumes human lives, and uh, that, is not, that is the opposite of rest. That is unrest and unbelief. So, present rest, you know, in the saying seems to, and I think this is true to Revelation in the New Testament, the obtaining the present rest is going to have an eschatological impact. That is, the one is connected to the other. We begin resting now, and we will continue resting then. Another from the sayings of the Savior. The Savior said to the disciples, Already the time has come, brothers, for us to abandon our labor and stand at rest. For whoever stands at rest will rest forever. There it is, the existential immediate rest and the eschatological rest. Throughout the New Testament and in even in the uh Jewish writings, rest appears, it's either, as in Hebrews, it's land, you know, entering into the promised rest, it's the Sabbath, it's the ex, you know, the the future expectation, it's the existential possibility now, it's the, we could just say it's salvation, that it entering into the rest is to enjoy the practical fruit of salvation. So we could say that it's the entire matrix for a comprehensive theological 
system. Are you at rest? Do you have peace? Do you? The writer of Hebrews uh, is gonna. He's not gonna use. He's not gonna make that point. Okay. They, she, Priscilla, uh, doesn't carry that out. So I, I don't. I may be making too strong a point of it. But what I would claim is, well, it seems like when you put all this together, it is connected directly with salvation. In chapters three and four, you you know you to avoid unbelief and enter into rest through faith or faithfulness depends upon Christ, and Christ then is the faithful one over the house. We are that house. If we, in other words, it's it's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the work that Christ has done, and our entry into that. Um. And so what is faith? Well, faith is holding fast the confidence and hope until the end, which is equated with entering into this rest. And unfaithfulness, Jake defined it last time for us, is rebellion. It's evil. It's deceitfulness. The writer says sin is deceitfulness, which hardens the heart, and that then is equated with disobedience. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In other words, this element of warning is always there. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Um, the other, the last point here is that though the word rest never appears again, entering appears a lot in Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews 6, uh, in the same way God, this is 6.17, in the same way God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to, for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and which enters within the veil. So the, the language, it's the same language of taking a hold of this hope that's pictured as being in the Holy of Holies that is in the very presence of God, uh, you know, and we can take refuge. So it's not, the, it's not, he doesn't use the term rest, but it seems like the same concepts. Hebrews 9.24, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Then a few verses down. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year. That is, that he's entered in on our behalf. And we then can enter in, we can be bold to enter in, to the holy, holy of holies with Christ. 10.19, Brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. 
So entering the rest, entering the holy place that that is made possible by the faithfulness of the high priest who has entered in on our behalf by the one who has offered himself and continually offers himself. Uh, um, So entering, I think it begins at verse 3 and 4, but it's central perhaps to Christology in Hebrews and soteriology that Christ has entered and we can then enter into also, that he has entered the presence of God through the veil, through the curtain. Um, We can enter rest, we can enter the sanctuary, we can enter the heavenly Jerusalem, we can enter Mount Zion, we can enter into salvation, I think is what it's equated with. That's my thought, but let me, if you don't mind... Maybe you do, but uh, Matt Welch sent me uh, Soren Kierkegaard's Upbuilding Discourses, and he has one that's entitled, Watch Your Step When You Go to the House of the Lord, and it reminded me very much of reading Hebrews. How still, how secure everything is in God's house. To the one who enters, it seems as if with a single step he had come to a distant place, infinitely far away from all noise and clamor and loud talk, from the terrors of existence, from the storms of life, from scenes of dreadful events, or the debilitating expectation of them. So he's in, you know he's picturing the house of God here, and of course, I think we can shift here that when we enter into the the fellowship we were entering into the house of God and he's going to say watch your step when you go to the house of the Lord how quieting how soothing alas and how much danger in this security and so he mixes it with both you may feel secure and warm and fall asleep in the house of the Lord but watch your step when you go to the house of the Lord he compares it to a word that, you know, if somebody's dying, I think it's still, it must have been the same then as it is today. If somebody's dying, everybody's afraid to say you're dying. Uh, until so, And then somebody comes in and says, you're dying. And the person, he says, the word that all hesitate to give to the dying, but which when he hears it, no matter by whom or with what lack of elo- eloquence it is heard. Why will that simple word bring about a totally different effect? Because death knows how to make itself understood on the question. To whom does it apply? Knows how to make you understand that it is you, that you are the one involved, that it is no one else. You are the one who is going to die. And of course, think here of Soren Kierkegaard emphasizing over and against Christendom the idea, oh, we can just kind of play a game at this. And he's saying, no, you've got to individually take this seriously. Therefore, we go to God's house to be awakened from sleep and to be pulled out of the spell. Yet God, and then he, he, I'm skipping around in the article. He talks about, you know, usually when we think of someone lofty, we think of someone far removed from us. Yet God himself, the infinitely lofty one, is in his loftiness very close to you in the house of the Lord. Because with God it is not as with a human being who basically becomes less lofty when he comes close to you. The lowly one 
uh, when he comes close to you, the lowly one, and gets involved with you. No, God can come very close to the lowliest and yet is in his infinite loftiness. God has come near to us in Christ, and we enter into the you know the presence of God. Um, God is not absolutely removed from us. Watch your step when you go to the house of the Lord. Take care when you go up to the house of the Lord, because there you will get to hear the truth for upbuilding. Yes, it is true, but take care with the upbuilding. There is nothing. Nothing as gentle as the upbuilding, but neither is there anything as domineering. You get to know the truth, the earnestness of the truth. The truth is just this, that you get to know it before God. In God's house there is someone present who, together with you, knows that you precisely, you, have learned the truth. Take care with this shared knowledge. You will never be able to slip back from this shared knowledge into ignorance. That passage, you know, don't fail to enter in. Don't fall back into the wilderness. That is, you will not slip back without guilt, nor will you escape the consciousness of this guilt. Your consciences have been cleansed from the guilt of dead works. If you fall back into it, then you will bear that guilt, fully conscious of what it is you're doing. Watch your step when you go to the house of the Lord. Even if you fled into God's house from the horror on the outside, from the most terrible thing in the world that can happen to a person, you are coming to something still more terrible. Here in God's house there is essentially discourse about a danger that the world does not know. A danger in comparison with which everything the world calls danger is child's play the danger of sin. Here in God's house there is essentially discourse about a horror that has never occurred either before or after in comparison with which the most horrible thing that can happen to the most unfortunate of all people is a triviality. The horror that the human race crucified God. Watch your step when you go to the house of the Lord. Shall we read Hebrews? which begins sounding very much like Soren Kierkegaard. Jake, you want to... Or Kierkegaard sounds like Hebrews. You want to read the first one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, the... you know, Verse 1. 4-1. Oh, I'm sorry. Isn't there another one of these? No, I read my Bible. Okay. Uh, the promise is still an open promise because it has not been obtained. Uh, they entered that rest, but they did not gain the promise. And so they failed to enter in, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. You, in comparison, have been given the reality of the promise. What a great tragedy should you fail to enter in to this rest. If you fail, you know, it will not just be death in the wilderness for a time. It will be ongoing unrest in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then verse 2, Sharon. For indeed the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
they did not receive the word with faith, is the idea. They did not combine it with faith. Um, so you hear, and, and of course the idea here is you that, that in Christ we have the true word. Um, in uh, chapter 11, he's going to say, well, actually they were faithful. But they were faithful then not to the word of Christ, but to the word that they had received. They still had not received the promises. But here he's using a kind of negative illustration of those who, who died in the wilderness. And then, uh, Rachel, you want to do three. and Yeah, three. For we who have believed unto the rest, as he has said, I swore, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So again, this is the appeal to Genesis chapter 2, which is an interesting, you know, this is where Sabbath is instituted, and he's talking about the household of God. Well, here is, I think, the imagery of, you know, both John and Hebrews is thinking of the whole cosmos as God building the house. And now the purposes of the house in Christ are, you know, the Sabbath has, has uh, inaugurated the beginnings of those purposes. And verse 4, David. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And we talked about this, that... Uh, I think we, we've misunderstood this passage, but maybe if we had been reading John and Hebrews more carefully, uh, we can understand, well, actually, the first six days were not the point of creation. The why of creation was the seventh day. Here's the explanation for what God is doing in the for other six days. So when Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, uh, he's saying, here is the purpose for creation. I'm the purpose behind creation. Uh, that that's why they would have stoned him when he made such a, a claim. And then, uh, Joel, you want to read verse five? And again, in this passage, you said they shall not enter my rest. Uh, again, referring going back to the passage in uh, Psalms uh, that he's quoting from. Uh, that I swear they shall not enter my rest. And so then the conclusion, Alec, in verse 6. Go ahead and read verse 6 and 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That David wrote the psalm after the Jews had already entered into the promised land. And it wasn't that they had hoped to go back to the promised land, because even in the promised land, Joshua had failed to give them rest. Which is verse 8, Maisie. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. And Chris, you want to con conclude with 9 and 10. So then there remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has been to God's rest has also rested 
So the the imagery is being consumed by dead works or entering into redemptive works, uh, and even God then has passed from some one sort of work to another sort of work, and so it's actually to participate then in this redemptive work of God in the seventh day that we find rest. That I think is. Uh, uh, I think it's parallel to, but it is unique in a sense to the writer of Hebrews. It's parallel to other ideas. Any other thoughts or comments, questions? I think the economy we live in, just society, no matter where you go, you can't find a society that functions purely out of rest. There's always going to be something that's robbing rest. Even in however perfect of a society you can have, like here, I mean, it's pretty great, but we still all have jobs that we have to go to and things that are draining and whatever. And it's a part of society, like, we can't quit our job. No matter, yes, it's not restful, no, it's not rejuvenating, but society on this side of heaven, this side of Jesus's coming back it can't function fully totally in rest but we can have glimpses we can have shares we can have pieces of it but it's like society is pitted against really enjoying rest which I guess is probably just a part of the fall does anybody want to answer that if anybody else wants to feel depressed too I, I was thinking, you know, fiddle on the roof when Tevia says, if I were a rich man, da 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 you know, He'd stop milking the cows. He'd stop delivering the milk. He'd go and talk with the, the, in the temple all day long with the rabbis, arguing points of the law. Um, and, but I think that, that in a sense, what he's picturing and is not what the writer here means. In other words, Sabbath rest, I don't think, means we stop milking the cows. I don't think it's that we stop delivering the milk. Uh, that in some way we've got to, yeah, we still got to milk the cows. But on the other hand, our reason for milking the cows or the purposes in our work can be taken up into a larger purpose. I mean, think of your friends at Walmart and Aldi's. Some of them, that is their life. They're, they're there to earn their, their paycheck, and that's definitive of who they are. But I think the idea of, a, of, a, of rest is not to cease labor, but to cease the futile labor in which we would imagine that we can gain life and identity through that kind of, of you know, work. Oh, no, I don't want to work. <laughs> <laughs> Was that too idealistic? Yeah. Uh, it would just be nice if we could just all live in garden and whatever. But people do that? Yeah. yeah. But then we can't be a part of society, so then it goes to the purpose of I don't know, the Sumas do it pretty well. But, like, Chad works like seven jobs. Yeah, he does actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> he, he works, he preaches, uh, he works a lot. He works like... 70, 80 hours a week. So they can be poor 
in their little self-sustaining house. That was the comment of one of Gandhi's friends. He said, oh, Baba, don't you know that it takes a fortune to keep you in poverty? <laughs> uh, I don't know, Jake, you got a different opinion than your wife? Nope. Yeah, <laughs> if I would disagree, she'd tell everybody at all these. <laughs> I think just they had that weekend. Yeah. They did. Yeah. All these? Just the girls. Oh, the girls. All the girls. They didn't seem a little tense. Maybe this isn't all the problem, not a universal problem. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Alec is going to save us. Um, Good news. Inside of verse 2 and verse 6, it talks about Israel as well as the church, mm-hmm. um, who he's writing to, talking about good news. I'm assuming the word is euangelion. Yes, it is. So what is the the Old Testament allusion to with the good news being preached to? Is it like the covenants? Is it like the taking out of Exodus with like the miracles as the echo um, uh, what what's going on there? What do you think? I've already gave my two guesses. I was wondering what your thought nugget had. Yeah, I, I nugget in between my ears is all worn out. I, I think you, that you hit it. The the good news, the euangelion, and and by the way, thank you for pointing that out because it is just the gospel. And what he's saying is the gospel was preached beforehand to these who. You know, but they failed to enter in. But now you've received the the, the gospel, um, and hopefully it will benefit you and it will give rise to faith. So I think the good news is the deliverance from Egypt and the inner entry into the promised land, which was just a foreshadowing of deliverance from sin and entry into the real promised rest of God, the presence of God. I, I almost want to ask this question more strongly then, um, but I'll, I'll ask it softly. Is there a kingdom reference and kingdom illusion inside of this? Like being brought out of I- Egypt and then you get to Exodus 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and um, a holy nation. And then what you have inside of Jesus Christ, or, or David even against Absalom, where you and Gelion is used um, to talk about the good news of the kingdom being delivered back to him after the defeat of his son Absalom. Um, is there a kingdom sort of element? Or even with like the rest, with what John Wallen does with it, where he's like, rest is like God ruling on the throne. Oh, absolutely. I just assumed that. That when he's talking about rest, he's talking about entry into the kingdom of God. And so, ex, you know, the whole imagery is the exodus and entry into the promised land, but that, that Im- imagery is fulfilled in the exodus from sin and entry into the body of Christ, which is the true kingdom. You are the temple, he says. You know, you are, here is the true kingdom. Maybe I assume too much, but that, that just seems to be the, the imagery behind all this. Sharon, shake her head, I do assume too much. Okay. Yes. Always. That's, That's exactly what it is. <laughs> do you agree, Alan? 
I mean, yeah, yeah, Penny Stimes Nichols makes a lot of sense. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> I actually got that one. He's too fast for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> two times, two dimes makes. <laughs> Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm just skimming the surface with with a lot of this. Um, this the writer of Hebrews is his language is packed. And you know, all I did today I just said, Well, I'll just pick a word and I picked the word rest. Last week I picked a word. I did the word Sabbath. But I think the two the two things, Sabbath rest, that we're talking about entry into an alternative time. And I think it is an alternative place, but I think the place is not Israel or the promised land. I think the church is the promised rest. I think the church is the kingdom that we enter into. Beware, be careful when you come to the, the house of God. I think that we're here. We're in the presence of God. And I think that's what he's talking about. That it's a dangerous thing to hear the truth. Because then you're required to do something about it. You got more, Alec? That was pretty good. Uh, I mean... I kind of. I have more questions. But. I kind of think the good news thing is just the good news that you have a God that is present. Is that just for me? That tied pretty easily with the Gospels, Jesus being the good, you know, and then also with the Old Testament, with the Exodus. I mean, yeah. Like a chosen people. Basically, it's like, hey, you're chosen people, I'm going to be your God. It's like, that's good news. Yeah, more of just, we have a God that is present, that comes down to us. and Yeah, it's well, live the money. Isn't the word euangelion actually a word that refers to this, this, when a new Caesar was chosen, a new king was chosen, something? The gospel was the proclamation of the new king. The king has come. And so I think you could tie that in both to the Exodus and into the coming of Christ, that here is...